Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Strava is looking for a senior production designer in San Francisco, California. Ithaca in Ann Arbor, Michigan, is looking for a senior quality software engineer as well as a user researcher for their search and discovery team. Both of these are remote positions. Sovos is looking for a UX designer in Boulder, Colorado. Vigit is looking for a creative designer in any of the following locations. Falls Church, Virginia, Durham, North Carolina, Boulder, Colorado, or Chattanooga, Tennessee. BuzzFeed is looking for a senior product designer for the BuzzFeed News team. This is a remote position. Hologram is looking for a head of design systems. This is a remote position for here in the U.S. Johnson & Johnson is looking for a content strategist in New York City, as well as a naming expert for a project in their consumer packaged goods division for a remote role. CarMax is looking for a senior visual systems designer, a senior UX researcher, and a senior product designer. All three of these are remote positions. And lastly, George Mason University is hiring graphic design faculty for the George Mason University School of Art in Fairfax, Virginia. For just $99, you can post your job listing with us where it will be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. We also offer annual job board subscriptions. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these listings. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, two quick things. First off, thank you so much to everyone who submitted an essay for this year's volume of Recognize. As I expected, some of y'all waited until the last minute, but to those of you who got in your submissions, thank you. I'm really looking forward to going over these submissions and seeing what comes out from this year. Also, second thing, it's that time of year again. It's time for our annual audience survey. Now, Revision Path has been in these podcast streets for over eight years now. That's a lifetime, a lifetime in podcasting, okay? And as we've grown as a show and as a platform, we've always taken in audience feedback for topics, guests, and pretty much anything else. So whether you're new to the podcast or you're an old fan, we want to hear from you. Head over to revisionpath.com forward slash survey to take this year's audience survey. Should only take you about five or 10 minutes and one lucky respondent will win a $100 amazon.com gift card. Now the survey ends at the end of this month on May 31st. We'll also tweet about the survey. We'll put it on Instagram and there's going to be a link to it in the show notes for all the episodes this month. You'll have plenty of opportunities to take it just in case you don't remember right now. Again, that's revisionpath.com forward slash survey. 
Now let's take some time out and thank our accessibility sponsor for this episode, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. All right, let's get to this week's interview. Now, if you've been a listener of the show for a while, then you probably already know this week's guest, Douglas Davis. He was first back on the show in 2016, and I'm so glad to have him back this year. He's a professor, he's a strategist, and he's the author of the book, Creative Strategy and the Business of Design. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. So, Maurice, thank you so much for having me back on Revision Path. My name is Douglas Davis. And I am a strategist, I'm an author, I'm a professor, and uh, for the last about three years, I've been the chair of the BFA in communication design at New York City College of Technology. We are the design program at the foot of the Brooklyn Bridge. And what I love about being the chair is that I've been able to make our mission an extension of my own personal mission, which is to increase the variety of voices making a living with their imagination. So, nice. Yeah. How has uh, 2021 been treating you so far? 2021 has been a blur. I still remember March uh, last year mm-hmm. uh, when we stopped having in-person classes and I pulled my team together for our last in-person strategy session where we just audited all the normal function of a, functions of a semester, what had to happen within this four-month time frame last year. And from there, I was able to defuse the operations among my uh, you know, 15-person team so that I could focus on forecasting and new systems design. And so it was a really important move because it helped me to set the tone that would bring us into a year later. Uh, now we're in April of you know 2021 but most of that has been a blur but that i guess i can say it's been a blur <laughs> because <laughs> of those reasons that i'm glad that we were able to pivot because i saw what the problem was immediately and we were able to identify how we needed to redesign our own systems communications or uh just how we actually carried about the normal day-to-day so that I could focus on finding the constants in this variable environment so that we could actually make decisions that would basically bring us into this point. So it's been a blur, but I will say that we have a little boy. He turned two during the quarantine. And so it's been, I think the best thing was to be here every day to see him. So I will say it's been a blur, but it's also been a joy because I would have never been able to watch my son grow in the ways that, that he has. So I'm grateful for that part of it. In a way, it sounds like the blur has been a blessing. It has been. I, I think that's a great way to put it, because not only has it allowed me to, for this last year of being chair, usually whenever you are elected chair is for three years and you decide to renew that or not, I've decided not to. But after the first two years, I had already accomplished all of my goals So this third year in that pivot has been about reinventing what it is that we offer. And it's been difficult because 
usually you can walk down the hall, you can bump into your coworkers and ask them what's going or observe yourself. And you're there, you can watch, you can experience the environment. But I've been flying this plane blind because the only place that our offering exists is in Zoom rooms, right? Yeah. So, so we've got to, in this year, we had to figure out like, what is it that we offer? Where's the value? And how do we even talk about it? And so we had a two-year run of quite a lot of positive press releases and quite a lot of awards. And we were nominated for uh, an Emmy twice and we won the Emmy. And, you know, I told my dean and, and the provost and the president not to expect any of those things from us because I don't even know what it is that we are attracting students to. And so until I can figure that out, by talking to literally every single person, we have about maybe 80 adjuncts and that you know 15-member team, I make 16, and just talking to them and asking them questions, what's working, what's not working, and why, in order for me to figure out maybe even what shouldn't come back from online, what should stay there, because it, we can still get a level of quality, but what is hurting, what is not actually what we would want if we had a choice, things like advanced studio photography, for instance, who's learning apertures and f-stops and lighting with the camera phone, right? Or things like figure drawing. If you're really about learning the aesthetics of line, shape, form, space, color, value, texture, all the things that they teach you in, in our school, traditionally, can't really do that at a distance. And so we've been trying to figure out how exactly we can offer our students the best value at a distance during this time when the whole world is shifting, in addition to the fact that, you know, right now, I like to say that the most important students are my staff, the professors, because it's almost like Thanos snapped his fingers in an instant, how exactly you went from freshman in, in college to first day on the job totally changed, Yeah, along with what you do on that job, how you do that job. And so I think it's really important to invest in the people who spend the most time with the talent that we're developing for the industry. And if, if we are not tapped into what those shifts are, if we're not useful to our own clients in the boardroom, then what I have to teach you in the classroom, especially whenever you're attempting something that I've never done myself, right? Like you're entering the industry, you're finishing college in a pandemic on the couch, <laughs> and so I think it's just really, really important for any educators out there to really think about that, that, you know, in an instant, your institution's competitive advantage that was built on an in-person experience was flattened. Yeah. And any of the, the competitive set, you know, I think it's arguable now whether those go-to, quote-unquote, schools that, you know, most recruiters recruit from it's arguable whether they still can produce the same level of quality when no one was prepared to sort of make this shift. So I think that it's a big opportunity for the challenger brands like us, but it all depends on what everybody did with their time. You mm-hmm. know, it's been a year, but in that year, that pivot and how you can take your resources, redesign your processes and think about what your new priorities are and then invest around those new priorities so that you can you know, focus on that forecasting, focus on new systems design, focus on decision-making, decentralized decision-making, focus on operations. 
those are, I would argue, the new essential skills as a result of the pandemic. So, yeah, it's, I mean, a lot of things have changed with the pandemic, as you mentioned, sort of, I think for educational, you know, facilities, whether it's a college or even something like a boot camp or something, it's how does yeah. that value translate? I know here where I'm at, I live near some HBCUs here, Morehouse College, Spelman, et cetera. And I know for a while they transitioned into doing only online learning. I think some of the schools have said now that I think the vaccine is out there, that people are going to start transitioning back in the fall to trying to do either some sort of hybrid model or like fully on campus, you know, instruction. But I think what is the tricky thing about it is people are going to have to sort of almost be reintroduced in a way back to society. Absolutely. (laughs) There's so many people I know just that are just workers that are like, I don't know about going back into the office. I kind of like working from home or they've gotten used to, or or they found a way to compartmentalize being able to work from home and still have a home and not feel like they, they live where they work in that sort of way. So there's a number of different like, considerations and factors to go into it. And yeah, I can definitely see for college because it's so, so expensive. Students are like, well, what are we paying for? I mean, yes, it's the education, but like we're not going to a building or sitting in a lab or using facilities like we're all at home. So should it be less expensive because of that? Like there's a a number of questions that go into all of that. Well, that's the challenge, right? You know, again, I mentioned earlier that in the blink of an eye, not only did the industry change in terms of like what your job is and how you do it, but how you actually enter this industry changed, right? We went from being the most experienced people in the room who could say, you know what, do what I do because I've done it and I can help you do it to, I've never done this before. None of us Mm -hmm. have. You don't have any more experience than I do. I don't have any more experience than you do. We're all doing this together. And I think that that's a better place to be, but only if everybody in the room can actually admit that, right? So, but I think that what you're pointing to started before the pandemic happened, right? I think that there's been price pressure on universities and colleges because of the fact that credentialing and how much tuition costs and how it's continued to go up. And as Clay Christensen, the late Professor Christensen would say, this particular category, the education space had not been disrupted in what, three? It never, pretty much. It's been just like this for hundreds of years. And I think that the fact that that overhead is also factored into that tuition, and again, that competitive advantage, that brand is charging you a premium, not just for the brand itself, but for the caliber of professor that they're attracting. That then is also factored into the tuition with, along with the network that you're around, like, you know, the people who you're going to leave with, mm-hmm. that's factored into the tuition in addition to keeping that brand what it is so it can, 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 so it can continue to attract those types of people so that they can keep you know, charging you that much money, but that is under attack. And it's funny because I said to my dean the other day in the provost, I said, you know, wouldn't it have been interesting if the disruption would have happened in a completely different way? Being that, what if the experts that are online right now that teach in these, you know, very entertaining short videos for free or for, you know, a little bit of money, 
what if those experts had to buy expensive real estate in order to create a physical campus? What if they had to build the buildings on that real estate? What if they had to go and get their PhDs and make sure that anybody who taught on their platforms had their PhDs? What if they had to approve their curriculum through the state? I mean, think about the decades of a head start that traditional universities would have had. Yeah. The problem is that the opposite happened, right? So right now, we've been pulled into their space. And this is a space where production value matters because we're competing for students' attention. You can't just stand there and speak your two-hour lecture in person, online, in front of the camera. It's not going to work. You're going to be bleeding sort of people who don't have the attention span in the first you know, two, three minutes. Right. And so I think as a result, that price pressure is something that I think for us, you know, I like to say with the public path to a creative career, because even though we are about four to five times larger than our private school competition, we have a fraction of their resources and we also cost a fraction of what they cost. And yet our students are competing for the exact same opportunities because we have an accredited BFA just like they do. Mm-hmm. So I think we're really well positioned. We're a commuter school, but I think though our tuition and our revenue model is not under the same pressure as like a division one or R one research institution that has dorms and, and meal plans and all that kind of stuff, it still is a competition between us as a traditional four year path into the industry and these low-end disruptors that charge you a lot less money, but that offer this practical advice about entering the industry. And there's some really quality players out there. My friend Chris Doe, The Future, or you know General Assembly. There are a lot of places that you can go to learn skills. And I'll give you one better, because if you rewind back to 1999, and you, you know, you'll appreciate this because you work at you know, a startup, but you know, back then, if you think about it, and this is when I entered the industry with all the dot-coms and digital advertising, nobody had a degree in web design. You couldn't yeah. study. It didn't exist. And what that was about was the fact that these people, whatever they studied, they got that opportunity, including myself, because you know, we were willing to learn a new language. And I think that if you fast forward to right now, we're back to a point where I think in 2017 – Microsoft and Apple and Google, they relaxed the requirement of having to have like a college degree in order to enter their ranks. So we're back to skills being the thing. I think the challenge though is that when you think about black and brown folks like us, you know, oftentimes we have to go to college to get the degree, to get the confidence to even apply to those places. Yep. And so I think overall the challenge there becomes We've got to understand how, you know, oftentimes a student will say, well, Mark Zuckerberg dropped out of Harvard. And so I'm, I don't really need school. I'm going to drop out, too. And I always have to, like, remind them that, like, that's not you. Right. I don't know what <laughs> family Mark Zuckerberg was born into, but maybe his mom was on the board of XYZ Company and had they already have the capital. They already have the connections. And if you don't have any of those things – If you don't have a network of all of those elements, it would be a mistake for you to 
do what Mark Zuckerberg did as a black man or woman. And so I think overall, those are the things that have to, to be thought through in mm-hmm. order for us to, to figure out exactly what the value is now and how we can extract what the value and the opportunities are right now. So it's a bigger sort of question of the education space and how we're going to continue to compete if we all know how Blockbuster versus Netflix ended up. And so I think that it's, if, if we're not careful as the traditional sort of university space changes, if we don't think about how much we're charging, if we don't think about developing those new skills, and if, frankly, our presidents rely more on their PhDs than they do their people skills, the pandemic has really required all of us to change and to develop new skills. And I think that presentation skills, marketing skills, the things that our clients pay us for, we are uniquely positioned as creative people to deal with these pivots. And if that PhD or the things that used to be the ticket into these exclusive spaces, if that still continues to be the yardstick with which people sort of deem that you are smart enough to handle this problem or if that's the thing that they keep requiring for you to be on a problem versus just thinking about what the skills are that are needed, what is the issue and how do we deal with it, then we're going to be in trouble. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think some things need to shift. Yeah. I mean, I think we're already seeing some companies, honestly, I mean, I think every company is still sort of trying to figure it out, but with some places they're definitely trying to like, skip back and forth between saying one thing and something else to see what is going to work the best. So for example, last year when the pandemic first happened and everyone kind of was forced to go remote, a lot of positions then opened up to become remote positions because you can't go into the office to do an interview. You can't go into the office to work. So you'll have to like do all your work distanced over zoom and things like that. And companies, at least companies I know that I've encountered we're still kind of trying to sort of kick the can down the road to figure out how much longer they were going to be doing this until they could get back to what it used to be. So you may apply for a position and they say it's remote, but then they'll say, oh, but when we're back in the office, you have to move here. Is that okay? And it's mm-hmm. like, well, they're not going to offer relocation. They just expect you to pick up and move because you've got a job there, which is not realistic at all it's not. i mean pandemic or not that's not realistic you know well that that's the misalignment right where looking backwards versus focusing forward and understanding that there's an aspect of what we used to do you know walk around maskless breathing each other's maskless air willy-nilly shaking hands and hugging each other and being in tight spaces and watching movies and stuff there's an aspect of our culture that may not return And I think that waiting to sort of base what you're going to do based on what used to happen or how quickly we will be back to that versus focusing forward and understanding that there are some new priorities here. I think that that's, that's the classic sort of thing that's going to determine who wins and who loses in this, this new environment. Mm -hmm. And I think that if, if we're talking about, companies and if we're talking about people i think it really does boil down to to two things relevance and belonging i think if you're an institution or if you're in a leadership position or if you're a brand if you're a college it doesn't even matter but 
if you're not really asking yourself as a brand or a company or an institution or an employer, are we relevant? If you're not asking that question, and if you're not then basing your answer, yes or no, based on how many people or groups can come to you and say, I belong, and therefore I'm going to stay here in this culture, mm-hmm. then you're in trouble. That you know, relevance, belonging metric, I like to say, is it's a call and response because whether you're a person, an individual, and you're going to a college or a certain brand to, to be employed, you're in some ways asking in your everyday interactions with that company, whether they're good or bad, you're making the determination if you belong or not. You're asking, do I belong? Yeah. And so if you, if you in the interactions, whether that's just the culture or how things are set up or if it's customer service, if it's how you are or are not invested in, if you determine in your aggregate that you don't belong because of those experiences being bad, then they're going to leave. And we've all left places because we've deduced that the way you're being treated is not what you want to continue to experience. Yeah. And so I think, you know, again, companies and people or your the college that you're going to, you're asking yourself, do I belong? And the way that that brand treats you is what's going to help you to arrive at your answer. But then if you're if you're that employer, if you're that institution, if you're asking yourself, are we relevant? And you're basing that on how many people can conclude that they belong, then you're in a good place. But if you're tone deaf or if you're looking for you know diverse candidates in the exact same way that you've always been doing it and you're going to the exact same schools that you've been going to and you're not really thinking about right now that the pandemic might be preventing some of the best talented people who you could have from even applying because of the new barriers that the pandemic has put into place, then you're going to miss it. You're going to miss that human potential. You're going to miss that diverse team because you're basically looking for diversity as if I'm a black white person, right? That's the only way that you can conclude that there aren't any diverse candidates or you can't find any. You're looking for black people with the same process and in the same places that you look for white people. Yeah. That's something I know I've talked about in my my where are the black designers presentations before. But I mean it's it's something still which is is coming up. Like for example, Revision Path as a job board. And we've gotten more companies that have posted to the job board, yeah. which is great. You know, that's wonderful. But it's interesting because then they'll turn around because maybe they don't get the response that they thought they would get from it. And I don't know. It's sort of interesting. I mean, I think just because you put a job out there doesn't necessarily mean that black and brown people will flock to it. I think a number of companies know either to post to these sorts of boards or they know that if they, you know, put these kinds of listings out there, they'll attract certain people. But like, I don't know if it feels like it's almost over indexed in a way, like every position Mm -hmm. you put out there is not going to have a bunch of black and brown people clamoring for it, especially if the position that you've written is, is written in a way that might exclude them or they may not be familiar with your company or it's not remote or like there's a number of different sorts of reasons. Like I had, I'm just going to like give a, yep. an example, but like I had a school that was like kind of in the middle of nowhere in the Midwest. Right. And they posted a position and then they came back 30 days later and they were like, well, no one, no one applied. Can I get my money back? 
And I said no. Right. But it was also sort of like, well, how many people of color are going to live in the middle of nowhere in the Midwest to teach at your college? Well, that's what we're saying. It's about the culture, right? And I think some part of what you're identifying is that everything that employers are dealing with in terms of diversity or in terms of race or in terms of just dealing with whether it's the Asian hate that's going on right now, that terrible, despicable yeah. you know, Asian hate, or whether it's just what black people have had to endure from the beginning. You know, we're talking about like Americans, like society's issues. And it's obvious that those issues would show up in your company. Because we're talking about whether people belong or not. And you know, Maurice, when you really think about this, right, if we're still in 2021, and I say this every year because it you know, thing change is not happening fast enough, but it's 2021. And when we can continue to say the words first and black in the same sentence, and, <laughs> and we were born here, it's clear that we're not woven into the society that we are a part of. And, yeah. and there's still so many different barriers. And I mean, that's not even to mention the barriers that COVID-19 is presenting. You know, it used to be, hey, wear a suit to your interview. Now your bandwidth is how you present yourself, just like that suit in person. If you're going to college because you want to change your socioeconomic situation that you was born in, but you live in the projects, you don't even choose your bandwidth because you don't actually buy your internet service. Hmm. So again, thinking about our professors as the most important students, if I'm a classic design professor and I want to show you the highest resolution image, but I don't know how to teach online, and so I've got all these high like resolution hogging bandwidth hogging images in my zoom and i keep kicking you off because your bandwidth can't handle my my presentation or my videos right like this is really about making sure that the environment that you're trying to attract that diversity to is set up to actually handle that diversity and that's why i give a lot of respect to companies like google and microsoft and i say that because they saw us at the foot of the Brooklyn Bridge. They see our diversity. They know that we have about 140 or 150 different languages uh, spoken in our student body. They know that we represent about that many countries around the world just in our student body because of the fact that there aren't any barriers to our program. And they, they flew out from the West Coast and they set up shop. Microsoft actually interviewed our students in a two-day sort of series of either giving workshops or interviewing our students to ask them, is it our tool that makes it like the barrier? Mm. And I mean, to ask that question was uh, wonderful. They observed our classes. They embedded themselves within the department. They conducted maybe like 15 or 16, 45 minute interviews where they really did ask. They asked a highly diverse group of young creatives is it our tool that is preventing you from coding? I mean, that question alone and, you know, flying out from the West Coast and really investing in trying to figure out what the answer was. And they went to several other schools as well, but they made it a point to come to us. And so same thing with Google and showing up at our school and sending maybe seven or eight people from their office in order to recruit. And we also had this... Uh, pilot where they had a group of students from California State Northridge University, as well as our program at City Tech, they met with and sort of paired our students with a Googler. And so they checked in every week. And basically what, and I really love about this, this was the equity engineering team. 
Jason Randolph, big shout out to him out on the West Coast. But the program was to introduce our students to the same problems that you would find if you were interviewing for a job at Google. And so that's how they're reaching into the pipeline, but also making sure that the environment itself, you know, they're asking the hard questions about their own tools and about their own decisions. They're willing to listen and they're willing to make sure that regardless of who you are, that they're tailoring how exactly they come and find you. Yeah. I mean, those are the examples that I want to hold up. And I have a lot of respect for them because it's not just that they're saying that, you know, diversity is important. It's not just that they're saying these things with their, you know, press releases or, you know, appointing very high C-suite level diversity people. And yet the numbers keep staying the same. They're really trying to do something about it. And so they earned my respect in that way. But again, it's not just about saying the right things or, you know, putting a posting in the right places. It's about understanding that, again, I'm not a black, white person. You've got to really think about if you want me to feel comfortable in your environment, in your culture, you got to make sure that you've, you know, created a culture that we would feel comfortable in. Yeah. And now a couple of years ago, I know you were a co-chair for AIGA's Diversity and Inclusion Task Force. I was also on the task force several years ago. What do you remember about that experience? Well, I think, you know, first I want to say that uh, Antoinette Carroll and, gosh, Andrew Bass and, gosh, there have been so many people who were investing in the work uh, long before me, uh, also Jacinda Walker. And so it was great to sort of show up at the AIGA and say, you know, I don't think you guys are actually telling the story or having the impact that you could have. And so I just offered my services as a strategist. And since I was about to have a baby, I was about to become chair, I was applying for full professors, a lot of things going on. Um, when they asked me to, to chair the task force, I said, yes, if I could have a co-chair. And so Pim Her was my dynamic, dynamic co-chair. She's a wonderful, wonderful person. I know you know her, but it was just really great to work with her. And I think that the challenge with the AIG as an organization at that time was just that in being an organization that had been around for so long, but that was so late to the, the conversation about diversity, double-digit late in so many ways that, you know, in communicating that to them, that the belonging idea that we talked about earlier, that when people show up and they keep hearing the exact same thing over and over again, and they don't really know what the value is of the money that they're paying, they're not going to stay if their needs are not getting met. And they're, we're not the only organization having conversations about diversity because there's so many other places where that conversation is being had and where change is happening. And, and just for instance, thinking about the advertising space. And again, the caveat being that in design, it's not this aggregate profession, right? You've got all these individual design firms and you might do a logo for different brands or identity or websites. But in advertising, you've got holding companies and agencies that have accounts, right? So in a sense, you know, they've been sued as an organization, Human Rights Council of New York, making sure that Black people were represented as a certain 
number of the population within the ranks in these holding companies. And even though that hasn't happened, the point, though, is that it was attempted, and it was attempted in a way where New York City was willing to sue. And so as a result, a lot of these C-suite level organization and, and titles came out of that. And so knowing the history of those things, and again, I'm, I'm going through it pretty quickly, but knowing the history of where the diversity conversation was and in the advertising space, I just was trying to communicate that we are, we're really arriving very, very late to this conversation, even though there have been some really amazing people who've had some progress and who've pushed the conversation forward within AIGA to then take that mantle up and try to push things forward. We did as much as we could do, but I think that the culture itself, there were a lot of you know changes and a bunch of turnover and just the structure itself, I think, needed some change. And so after about a calendar year, I realized that it might be more helpful if we sort of stepped aside because as as much as I like to, to try to push things forward and really win change, it wasn't possible with that title and in that organization. So wonderful, wonderful people. I have some wonderful friends who've been able to find progress in that space. I just needed to redirect my own time and no love lost, but I did need to focus forward. So it was a good experience. I think that we were able to show a different way to lead, but ultimately we were not effective. That's how I remember that experience. And um, I do hope that as the conversation about equity and black lives and, and just all the things that we're dealing with right now continues to evolve, I do hope that not only AIGA, but many other organizations and many other professions, I really hope that we can sort of look at like what places like Canada is doing you know, it's like RGD? Well, yeah, and not just even RGD, but like also there are colleges and universities out there. OCAD U, there's a, a woman out there. She's the dean of design. Her name is uh, Dr. Dora Tunstall. She's been doing some wonderful things, like cluster hires of like black faculty. She was able to hire five black faculty members in a space that had no black tenured faculty for over 100 years. And she hired five Black people ten, on tenure track lines, and she's in the middle right now of an indigenous cluster hire where they're looking for four indigenous faculty members to join in that way. But she's been making some real change, and so they're far beyond the diversity and inclusion conversation that America has been sort of steeped in. They've moved towards anti-racism and decolonization, and and so I think that. Looking at countries and people who have moved far beyond where we're at and really taking note of what they've been doing and then figuring out what that looks like within the American space and within our own companies or our own universities is what I hope you know happens as a result of just being able to mention it and bring it up within the context of this conversation. That's where I hope we are able to go because they're further along. Yeah. And I mean, you know, even thinking about like this year, for example, I've had a lot of design educators on the show. I usually try to have a good mix of design educators and stuff. But even thinking like how, you know, you said before how teaching has changed and 
how different organizations are changing. One thing that sort of struck me last summer was a lot of these different companies and such putting up black squares and saying that they now are in on All Lives Matter and we're going to, I mean, not All Lives Matter, sorry, on Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And we're going to start celebrating Juneteenth and things like this. And all of that is clear virtue signaling, first yeah. of all. But I remember getting just asked and from other people and such, like, how long is this going to last? And I'm like, I don't know, like a few yeah. months, maybe like as the next extrajudicial killing crosses the airwaves, right. like yeah. things happen to come at such an interesting nexus point with this pandemic and there not being any sports and not being able to travel and such where people were sort of forced to now see it in a way that I guess they had been privileged enough to ignore it for, yeah. you know, years and years and years. It's kind of astonishing to me how many people were just sort of woken up last year because of this. But like even that whole habit of like black squares and such, like around that time, I was also looking at old issues of Ebony and Jet magazine mm -hmm. around the time when Dr. King was assassinated and the same types of things were happening. Companies were posting all black, like an all black square for an ad. Like what does that accomplish except using up a lot of ink? <laughs> you know? Exactly. Well, I think we're in marketing, right? So the fads and trends are something that advertising agencies and design firms are going to really, I think, just be attracted to because what we do harnesses culture. I always like to say that creative people are the spoonful of sugar that make business and marketing objectives palatable to the public. Like they mm -hmm. can't go public without us, right? And so if you think about advertising, right, and the fact that like the authors and drivers of American culture, not just black culture, American culture. And I'm saying this off the heels of last night's verses, Earth, Wind, and Fire versus the Isley <laughs> Brothers, right? So the full, you know, glory uh, and riches of black people were on display last night for the world to see. But we're the drivers of American culture. We're the authors of American culture. We're the influencers of American culture and fashion. And again, I'm not saying that no one else does anything. I am saying that there is an outsized contribution to that from black people. And yet, if we are not represented within the same proportion of the population, there's something wrong. Because if our industry is built on crafting messages, building relationships, brand values, customer relationship management, if we're built on that, and if we're built on crafting those messages and targeting groups, if I'm excluded, part of the authors and the influencers of American culture in this country, if I'm excluded in a profession that targets and crafts messages and brings them to people, then it's because it's on purpose. And I think that we can sort of get caught up in the moment of like basically being embarrassed if you're not posting something that's pro-black, which I think a year later, if you look at someone's actions as an organization or a country or even as individuals, I mean, if you look at the misalignment, if you look at the mixed signals that exist in America right now, you had literal people carrying Blue Lives Matter flags, having an insurrection on the Capitol, beating police officers with it. Like, yeah. There's so many mixed signals within our country. There's equal justice under law on the top of the Supreme Court, and yet we're watching right now George Floyd, his character is basically on trial for his own murder right now. 
And so there's all these mixed signals that exist in everyday life in America. And so it makes total sense that if in the moment, if the trend is sort of pointing towards black lives and black people being in fashion and and being pro-black about a specific issue, if that's in style, then of course, if we're, you know, in this profession, if we're being honest, then yeah, you'll be embarrassed if you're not about it. But if you even look at the, you know, the laws that are meant to suppress voters right now in Georgia and the fact that, you know, these companies, they hire lobbyists, they knew what, what was in those bills before they were passed. They were pressed on it from black corporate leaders as well as black employees at those places because black dollars are ones that they want. And so at the end of the day, even those companies, which I'm glad that they're speaking up, but they're speaking up too late. And we still are in a situation where we don't have what we need. And so I think overall, it's great to have that black square. It's amazing to have that hashtag, but that's easy. You Mm -hmm. know, I think, again, going back to what I can say from what I've seen and what that experience has been with Google and Microsoft choosing to help us because our partnerships are how we have more impact than what our resources can produce. And so I think at the end of the day, when you have partners who understand that there's a different problem in order to engage different people, think about the internship sort of structure and and if it's not paid, who can afford to do that? You know, you got black and brown and talent just asking themselves, can I afford to be a designer? You know, my work has to pay for my existence. And so if you can't afford to get that experience, then you're going to work somewhere, but that's not going to be a part of your career because you got needs. Whereas someone else is getting the experience that they need because they don't need the money. And so I think that being able to have that diverse team, being able to see the socioeconomic differences in attracting and retaining different groups and making sure that you can build your culture in a way that says that you're relevant because you got white people, black people, Asian people, Indian people, and they all can, you know, gay people, trans people, you got everybody there because they do feel like they belong because you thought about how to actually have company that's not like you. Yeah. You know, I think that that, like that takes work and, I think at the highest levels, it's going to take some incentives changing. It's going to take the laws changing. And, and Maurice, man, it's exhausting. I can say to you that this year has been a blur because of the pivot that's been going on with the pandemic. But, you know, it's bigger than that, right? Like we've been watching ourselves get shot or hung or killed or, or the mysterious circumstances where a routine interaction with police turns deadly because you're unarmed and black and I always post on social media. Next time it's going to be me. One day it's going to be me. My mom hates it. My family and friends hate it. And they say, you know, God forbid. And I say, you know what? That's exactly what George Floyd's family said. God forbid it happened to you. But it happened. We're no different. And so until all these things are factored in, of course, we're bringing this to work. Of course, these are all the challenges that we have to fight through in society at work. We literally just now had to pass laws where you can't discriminate against me because of my hair. I've had to cut my hair to get jobs before. 
You know, who has to do that? What if a white woman had to do that to get a job? The condition is you cut your hair. That's crazy. And we don't even think about it like that because we've always had to walk in a space that wasn't designed for us. We've always had to walk in a culture that wasn't designed for us. We've always had to navigate a criminal justice system that wasn't designed to give us equality. And so I think it makes complete sense that these things show up in the companies that we are going to work for. And it also makes sense that the trends towards whether it's social justice or even just mentioning Black Lives Matter, because you couldn't even say that for a while. (laughs) That's true. You were looked at like you just said, you know, hail Satan or something crazy. And it was like this radical sort of thing versus like, no, like my life should matter. And I'm so angry that I got to say that. And yet it's what we've been able to to navigate because we're still here and we're going to be here and we still drive culture. And we still are the authors of American culture in, in, in so many ways that are very creative and, and just whether it's poetry or whether it's music or whether it's fashion like we still are a great source of America's competitive advantage if it would just love us back. That would be nice. That would be nice. nice. It would. Is that fair? (laughs) Fair. Ooh. There's so many. (laughs) If we were going to wait for fair, Maurice, and you know, you know, I'm glad we're talking about this so that people can sort of understand that this is what we have to go through. Yeah, But, you know, what I realize is that there's two sides to what could be seen as fair, right? Think about the imposter syndrome. Think about all the different social issues that we just talked about. And then think about how much confidence you do or don't have in doing your job. Think about all the internal turmoil that you have to deal with in addition to all the social issues that you got to walk into work with. All the barriers, all the different test or things that were set up to give you a certain score on the SAT based on like asking you questions that have nothing to do with your culture. And then some people actually believe that outward measure of what their potential was. I didn't mm-hmm. believe it. You know, I took the SAT like three times. My guidance counselor in high school didn't have one conversation with me about college. And so I said to myself, I said to myself, if I don't go to college, I wanted to be because I chose not to go. So I went to summer school myself. I took my extra math. I took my extra foreign language. I took the SAT three times. And you know what? After those three times, I probably got like a 780, my Mm -hmm. highest score. So by that measure, I'm stupid, Maurice. But if I looked at that, that number and let that number tell me what I was capable of, then I wouldn't have an Emmy. I wouldn't have two master's degrees. I wouldn't have gone on to write a book. I wouldn't have done anything. Because I'd have been too busy moping. But that fairness, if we're talking about fair, you know, think about how you have to be deliberate and determined in a way that white people don't have to be in order to make it. And then there's the opposite side, right? So as I mentioned, I'm chair of uh, the program, and there's about 650 students. About 100 people are on my staff. And You know, it's one thing to have to fight through any of the imposter syndrome. Thank goodness I didn't suffer from those things. But, you know, you do have to see yourself as worthy to be a leader, worthy to make decisions in order to perform in that job. You got to be focused on the fact that you're qualified and that you can 
do it as well as anybody else. But then there's the opposite side to that fairness. White people have to see you as a person who they can follow. Yeah. They have to see you as a person whose decisions that might affect their choices as something to respect. They have to see you as somebody who they're willing to give a chance because if they don't, then no, it's not fair that the decisions that you're making with all of the training, with two master's degrees, having written a book about strategy, having proven that your tactics and the way that you move in the world do well, having won an Emmy, having brought all of the goals that you said that you would set out to bring, having you know done those things early, but still having people question whether you know what you're talking about, still having to say the same thing for a year before you even heard. All of those things, if we're talking about fairness, it's like this double-sided coin where you have to see yourself as capable and worthy and why not you? But then even if and when all those things are true about you and you are capable and you are worthy and you do make it, if people don't see you as worthy or capable and don't trust you or don't follow you or they're insubordinate for the sake of being insubordinate, even with all the accolades, then that's not your issue, even though you got to deal with it. And no, Mm -hmm. that's not fair. But that's the same issue as, you know, having that routine parking or traffic violation or traffic interaction with a cop and having those two master's degrees, being an author, being a global speaker, and yet being an unarmed black man and having them look at you and deem that you're a threat and deciding to shoot you. Yeah. For no reason other than you're unarmed and you're black and you're a man. I mean, how many times have we seen that? So no, it's not fair. And yes, it's exhausting. And yes, we see it in American society. And yes, then we have to deal with it in the companies that we go to work for, in our everyday interactions, in this system that wasn't set up for us. And yet, we're still bringing a level of contribution to all of it that America wouldn't be any of what it is without our contribution. So it's thankless. (laughs) It's completely thankless and you're not only not wanted but at the same time what would america be without us and we all know the answer to that question and so no it's not fair and no we don't even get the equity that we put into it and yet you can't stop us you know if anybody had any question i'm a dark-skinned red bone (laughs) <laughs> you know, on the inside. <laughs> if anybody had any question. But, you know, I do believe that things will change over time. But is it just on the surface that it changes? Or will we be able to, as creatives, as black creatives, as the people that we are, will we be able to affect change and influence brands from within? Will we be able to step up to those leadership positions and make the decisions that will shift the culture of the places that had locked us out or that don't call out to people? How are you going to leave the space that you walked into? How are you going to you know, push it forward? And I think that if all of us could just look at pushing it forward just a little bit. And I think lastly, I'll just add on to this that, again, like a lot of the topics that we talked about are heavy. A lot of topics that we talked about 
precede both of us. Mm-hmm. You know, our grandparents and great grandparents were talking about these same things and nothing's changed or it hasn't changed enough that if they were still alive, they might be confused that we weren't in their time in 2021. So progress is slow. Progress may not sort of shift and move into the place that we would like it to in our lifetime, in our kids' lifetimes. Who knows? Mm. But I think that overall, we have to also take care of ourselves, right? Who's to say that you want to actually be a part of the places that don't want you? Who's to say that those places don't, you know, they don't deserve you? And so I think that it's important for anybody listening to really understand your own worth. They need us as well. And so you can determine who benefits from your presence as well. That is within your control. And, you know, again, we all have to balance the fact that we have to eat as well. But I think it's very important to understand how much we are worth and how much our contribution is worth. It's not just checking the box, having a black face, being able to give the company some cover to say that they are about diversity because you're there at the table. We all know Mm -hmm. that that doesn't work. But I think really understanding that where things are shifting in a way that there is more control in our hands. There is more opportunity because of the internet, even though there are some barriers that come along with it, because we can go straight to the world, straight to the public with what we have, things will and are changing. So again, I I think about Timbaland and I think about Swiss Beats doing verses, right? Like it makes total sense that that came from two musicians from from us, from our culture. Mm-hmm. And look at what they're doing. Look at what D-Nice has been doing. Club Quarantine, you know, like our creativity cannot be stopped. And so there's this love-hate relationship that America has with us. And it can't get along without us. And yet I'm hoping that it can learn to embrace us in a way that we can unlock the potential of little black boys, little black girls, minority, you know, brown, black, brown, queer boys and girls so that we can really move and be and have that outlet that we are going to get out there anyway. It's going to happen anyway. That can't be stopped, but it'd be really nice if there wasn't such resistance or so many barriers to fight through. That would be fair, <laughs> but you know, stay black and die and pay taxes, right? Yeah. That's it. One big change, and I mean, I think we've probably all heard it in the background as you've been talking, as you became a father <laughs> over the past few years since we had you on the show. How has fatherhood changed you? Yeah, my, my son, Jonathan, it's changed me in a lot of ways. And I'm sitting here smiling as I think about, you know, how exactly... I can share in the amount of time that we have how it's changed me, but it's it's been transformative in the way that now I understand the fear that my mom had when I would leave the house and when I was rebellious and when the cops would harass and I was this outspoken young kid who was not about to hold my tongue no matter what. Now I get that terror because now I have a son who is the light of our life and who, if something happened to him, it would be devastating. And now I know what that feels like 
to have so much to lose, but to have so much potential. And I guess, you know, I'm, I'm speaking from the standpoint of how it's shifted me. I think it's made me more aware that at some point my son will go from being this cute little kid that everybody looks at on, on social media when I post. At some point he's going to go from being cute to a threat. I mean, Tamir Rice was a little kid. Trayvon was a little kid. And so I think the way that it's changed me is it's made me hyper aware of how blessed I was and why when at whatever point, because uh, I didn't discriminate, but why what at whatever point I had a white girlfriend, my family was uncomfortable, but they still embraced that person because they love me. And so I think that the challenge at different points is that that change is what you then become your parents. You can see from their, from their perspective, you understand the fact that to protect your son, that you know you you have to sacrifice in different ways. That if it was just you, you know maybe it wouldn't matter. And so I think the way it's changed me is that it's made me even more aware of all the things that we've been talking about, and it's made me really question whether I want him to have to go through all of this again if we're going back to fair you know i can't lie to you and say that we haven't thought about and and you know really entertained leaving the country i can't say that we haven't entertained thinking about you know what zip code we might want to live in so that when we call the cops they actually come and that sucks man like it's exhausting because i would much rather be focused on the fact that he loves dora the explorer and that he loves to say, yum, 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 delicioso, you know, and that he's <laughs> running and jumping around and we got to tell him stop and, and get off that and take that out of your mouth. Like, I would love to focus on just that. And, you know, for right now, we're safe. But Brianna Taylor thought she was safe, too, when she went home and locked the door and went to sleep. And so I think, you know, there's no way to escape America and the weight of America. And so... It's changed me by making me even more aware of how precious life is and made me even more aware of the responsibility that we have to change things so that at some point we can just be. Because I want my son to just be. You know, he walks around the house, his toys are everywhere, just like any other kid. And yet we can see him recognizing patterns and you know, stacking his blocks in certain ways that they look like a sculpture garden as you walk through room to room to room, you know he's been there. And being able to be here in a pandemic, to have the privilege of being the boss during a time when I can make the decision as to whether we are or not going to go back in person. And I can make the decision as to, you know what, I don't want it on my conscience that I put mixed signals out there to attract students back into a situation where they could get sick. Or I don't want to put my staff in harm's way. Or I'm not going to ask anybody to do anything that I'm not willing to do myself. And so you know what? A year ago, I decided we were going to be on this couch. We will be remote for the whole school year. And I'm glad that I could say that because not only did it help me to make sure that I didn't put anybody else's baby in harm's way, it allowed me to be home and actually help my wife to raise mine. And so I think, you know, this just goes back to in some ways, a call for anybody who is thinking about leadership or taking more responsibility, I want to encourage you 
to take that step. And yes, it's a burden. It's very difficult. And yet, if you can learn operations, if you can learn new systems design, if you can learn, you know, strategy forecasting, if you can learn decision making, negotiations, if you read creative strategy in the business of design, it can help you with the strategic part of things. But if you learn those things and take on more responsibility, you can help to create the environment and make the decisions that not only benefit the people who you will be responsible for, but it also help you to benefit your own family. It is still a sacrifice, but at least it's you making those decisions versus somebody else making those decisions for you. And we need more of that. I believe we need more of that. I'm probably the first black boss that my staff has worked for. And I've worked for as many black bosses as my staff has worked for. Hmm. It's crazy, right? Yeah. But, you know, in some ways, becoming a father has, you know, helped me to to really just be more responsible with that. And, you know, just full disclosure and, and for accuracy's sake, I had a son in when I was in Hampton, when I was what freshman year. So I was probably about eighteen. Okay. Uh, so my oldest son, his name is Douglas, and uh, he's down in South Carolina. I had a son back then, though it was a very different interaction in terms of you know I'm a kid and he's a kid. It's one of those things where right now is very different because I'm an adult. And, you know, being in a pandemic and being able to, you know, have two sons, but just to have a little one here with me, it has changed so much. And both of my sons, thank goodness, are healthy. But it really does, when you become a father, it makes you think about what your decisions are and what the impact of those decisions are. So it transforms you. Definitely does. How do you define success now? Well, I mean, that's a really interesting question because, as I mentioned, I'm not going to have chosen not to continue on as chair because I've been able to accomplish the change in our culture and raise our visibility, win those awards, do all the things that I set out doing. And on July 1st, when I'm not chair anymore, when my term ends, I won't even be 45 yet. And so... In that, I can say that success is not accomplishing all these things, even though I've been able to accomplish those things and go to Hampton and then go to Pratt and get a master's and then go to NYU and get another master's and travel the world and write a book and, and, and speak globally and do these things. Success is keeping your word to yourself. Success is doing what you set out to do. And I always define success as that because things come and go. You know, you can be on the top of your game one day and and be on the bottom the next day. And so if it's just about what you're able to accomplish or what your paycheck is, then that definition is a bad definition because it always puts you in a situation where you're always looking at the material or you're looking at what people pay you to be creative. And I need to be creative because that's how I live and breathe. I need to do that for free because that's who I am. I need an outlet because it's inside of me and it needs to come out. And so success is keeping my word to myself, you know, being able to say, I'm about to go do this. I don't know whether I'm be able to accomplish it. I'm scared even, 
But you know what? That's exactly what I'm about to go do. And I'm thankful that that's the way that I see it, you know, because when I went to Hampton, you know, it was great to to be taught about work ethic because it continued to build on the same lessons as my grandfather or my grandma or my mom, you know, when they tell you when you cut in the grass down south and it's real hot, you know, you know this, you got to be inside before 1059 in the <laughs> summer cutting that grass or else you're going to be face down yeah. in the grass. And so, you know, knowing that I was taught by people who were doing things and who had integrity and who said, if you're going to cut the grass, then cut it right. If you're going to sweep the floor, sweep it right. But to know that when I went to Hampton, that those foundational lessons from those people in my own family and community, to know that that was the beginning of my education in my family, to then go on to Hampton and be taught that, well, if they ask you for five, then do 55 and choose the best five. That lesson had already been laid. It was just built on to then go to New York and wonder whether I could compete. Even though I graduated Hampton with a resume, I you know, had a Disney internship. I also worked at uh, microgra- Hampton University, had a microgravity collaboration. So I was able to work with NASA and the Smithsonian several times, but I knew I still needed more. So then when I went to, to Pratt, you know, not knowing whether I could compete in New York, being scared to death, you know, I'm moving to New York and then being like, I'm moving to New York. Both that was excitement mixed with fear because New York is everything you've ever wanted and everything you've never wanted rolled into one. But knowing that, you know what, I'm gonna go test myself on the biggest stage that I could find as a southern boy from the country. Can I do it? I don't know. So let me go test. Let me go see. And to know that, you know, I didn't know whether I could, but I didn't know that I wasn't going home. And to know that all you have to do is say that to yourself one time, but you got to spend every day meaning it and keep being able to keep your word to yourself, despite, you know, having to fight through alcoholism and drug abuse. I think I learned the importance of what success is and how I define it because I didn't have control over my own, what I said, my choices. And I knew that when I got so far into addiction that, you know, I couldn't keep my word to myself. I said, I'm not going to drink anymore. I said, I'm not going to get high. I couldn't keep that promise to myself. That's when it scared me. So that's when I realized that that's what success is. If you can make a promise to yourself or say something to yourself and then follow through with that, that is successful. And if you can define it that way, then, you know, you're not as a creative person looking right and left and being afraid of people who are talented as well. You're looking right and left and you're being inspired whenever you see somebody do their best because you understand that you're competing against yourself. You're trying to be better than you were last time. You're trying to beat your best time the last time. You're trying to get higher. And when you know that it's it's you competing with you, then it's very easy to understand that that's what in the way that I've found what success is and how to define it, it's not about what I've been able to achieve. It's not about the fact that I own my home in Brooklyn. You know, it's not the fact that I've been able to, to become chair and I'll be able to lay that down before I'm even 45. It's really about just being able to keep my word to myself. You know, that's success. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like after, you know, hopefully this pandemic is a thing of the past and whatever sort of new world or new reality we end up coming into. Like, what, what kind of work do you want to be doing? 
That's a good question because I think knowing that those new skills that I've been able to develop in this pivot, operations, new systems design, forecasting, decision-making, all of those things are a part of what I'm going to write about because I think, you know, on the one hand, as creative people, we, we have to keep changing what we learn in order to keep doing the same thing. So I, I like to look at the timeline back in the day, you know, you learn Flash and then you could even learn Action Script. And then now none of that is even there anymore. And so I think the fact that we have to keep learning typefaces, you got to learn how to do Basecamp, you got to learn Slack, you got to learn all these different ways to do the exact same thing strategy and marketing, all those skills are things that we needed to add in order to be a better creative person. In my perspective, that's why I wrote the book. But I think that now in this new world, learning how to make decisions, my son is so funny, Um, (laughs) learning how to make those decisions, learning how to lead and developing those skills. I want to write about that. I want to continue to develop a body of, of thought leadership around that. But I think I obviously also want to put those skills into practice, but I think just going back fundamentally, I want to turn my book back into an online class. That's how Creative Strategy in the Business of Design started. I wrote a four-lesson online class for how uh, how Design University is not even there anymore, but it did really, really well. And so I was able to leverage that into writing a book. But now, since things have shifted, I want to turn the content back into an online class because I never want to lose touch with teaching people, reaching students, whether they're professionals or whether they're, you know, pursuing some sort of credential or degree. So I want to always be able to say, do as I do versus do what I say, whether that's to my sons as an example, or whether that's to my students. I want to be able to reach them through reason and reach them through understanding that I'm never going to waste their time. And so in order to be useful in the boardroom, in the classroom, or at home, wherever, I want to always do the things that I'm asking people to do. I want to lead from the front. I want to show them that I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I'm not willing to do or haven't done for a client. And so I want to make sure that I can continue to be a teacher, continue to be an example um, because even though I went to, to Hampton, there was no black design professors when I went to Hampton University, HBCU. There was no black design professors at Pratt. There were no black strategy professors at NYU. And then I became a strategy professor. I became a design professor. And so I think the type of work I want to do is whatever is going to allow me to use me as an example for people who didn't see themselves. And I think that, you know, whatever that looks like is where I want to offer my skills. But I also want to make sure that wherever I'm offering my skills is a place that appreciates what I bring. And so I think I'm open to the world and really thinking about other countries and thinking about other places or or I can stay right here in Brooklyn. But I think whatever I do, I want to feel like I belong. I want to feel like I'm contributing to a culture that is striving to be relevant to as many people as possible and taking down those walls. So whatever that looks like, that's what I'm interested in. I just don't know what that is. And therefore, I think in being able to 
be comfortable with what I've been able to achieve in such a short period of time, whether that's in my current role or whether that's just as, you know, somebody who has not even made it to 45 yet. I feel like I've been able to move in and out of spaces after being effective or as effective as possible and being able to, to be comfortable with that success and then say, you know, I don't know what the next step is, just like I didn't know whether I could compete in New York. And that fear is always mixed with excitement. But I got my own back. I believe that whatever I do apply my skills to, I'll figure it out. I'll be able to bring something to it in the way that I do. And so I know that there's some place that is exactly where I would thrive. Because I think in answering this question, I think, you know, I'm trying to acknowledge the fact that as the world shifts, which is, you know, where you started with the question, you can sort of find yourself misaligned, whether that's in the the country you're in, based on how they actually, you know, treat children Mm -hmm. or how they treat elders. You could find yourself misaligned in the in the culture you're in at your job based on how they are or not dealing with the pandemic. You can find yourself misaligned in, in so many different the society that you're in based on, you know, whether they do or don't live up to the mission statement that's in the Pledge of Allegiance, right? Uh, one nation under God with liberty and justice for y'all. I think, <laughs> you know, we're, we're in this situation where because the whole world is is being rethought, I think it's okay to not know what the next step is and to really sort of rethink the decisions that you had already taken for granted because that's what we do in our profession, right? Like we sort of have to organize that chaos and question the answers that our clients come to us with that used to work six months ago or, you know, a year ago in our case with COVID and, and really, you know, rethink what was the answer before because the environment shifted. And so maybe that's not the answer anymore. So that we can, you know, turn, find those insights and then execute on whatever that plan is. And that's that's how I've been moving through teaching. That's how I've been moving through uh, speaking, how I've been moving through writing, how I move through creating uh, solutions for my clients. But it's also how I approach my career decisions. And so I might not know what's next, but I do know that in questioning the answers, I am asking questions about things that were settled. I'm reopening areas that were given, and I'm excited about that. That uncertainty excites me. Yes, it's scary, but I'm excited about it. And so I don't know what that means, but I do know that in order to you know, keep my word to myself, in order to continue to test myself, that you know, I will be adding additional challenges i just don't know what they are right now and i and and i'm comfortable with that well just to you know wrap things up where can our audience find out more about you and your work and everything online absolutely well if you check my website out it is douglasdavis.com but you can also find me on twitter i'm at douglas q davis uh you can find me on facebook i'm professor davis you can definitely see me with my son, I'm always posting on Instagram. I'm at D-Q-U-E-J-U-A-N. So hit me on IG as well. Sounds good. Well, Douglas Davis, I want to thank you 
again, just so much. I mean, one, for taking time out to come on the show, but to really be so open and honest and candid and I think, you know, also just thoughtful about not just the work that you do, but how it impacts the society and world around you and really like take the time to think about just where we are in this current this current point in history and what that means for us as as designers, what it means for, you know, you and I and others as as black people, as minorities. Like thank you just so much for for opening up and sharing all that. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you having me, Maurice. Thank you for having me back. I'm thankful. I believe in your venue. Uh, I share your posts because I believe in what you're doing. I believe in who you are. And uh, I'm thankful that, that I can call you a friend. So thank you for having me. Big, big thanks to Douglas Davis. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Douglas and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our wonderful sponsor for this episode, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? Don't be a stranger. Hit me up on Twitter or Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you can leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Let the world know about the show because it really helps us grow and reach more people all around the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we will see you next time. Revision Path.